0: Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Open wide, or at least now your dogs and cats can when they see the veterinarian, and a new way for your veterinarian to detect dental disease. But first, Dr. Susan Little is a professor of parasitology at Oklahoma State College of Veterinary Medicine in Oklahoma. That's right. Yes, it's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in a long time.
1: Yeah, it's great to see you also.
0: So I have a question for you. When you were in veterinary school, what was so fascinating about fleas and ticks? Classmates of yours probably said, tapeworms, oh my gosh. (laughs) Why is she interested in this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think to this day, people still kind of wonder, like, what's different about my brain that makes me so... In, just enraptured with parasites. But when I was in veterinary school, I went, I thought I'd be a mixed animal practitioner, go back to rural Kentucky where I grew up and have a mixed animal practice. And that would have been a fantastic life. Um, but then the second year of vet school, Dr. Anne Zajac started lecturing on parasites and just telling the stories of how these little animals make their way using larger animals as their, as their um, ecological Matrix, right? So they they make their way through the world by living in and on animals. And parasites tell the best stories. It really is fascinating. Well, when you think about the life of the tapeworm, right? Most people think, well, it's in the intestinal tract, you know, it's dark, it's warm. How boring that would be. But for the adult tapeworm to get there, it's gonna have to, first it's an egg that's passed out in the feces. That egg has to be ingested. If it's like a flea tapeworm by the larvae of a flea in the environment, then develop to the sister circoid, the immature stage inside the adult flea as it pupates, as it goes from larval to adult development. Then that flea jumps back on a dog or a cat, and the cat or dog grooming itself will ingest the flea. And then the adult tapeworm will develop again. And so it's just this really complex ecology and behavior that has to take place for all of that to work. And it's just innately fascinating.
0: it, It is amazing how the way nature works, right? And one might suggest, it's been said, that we're never going to get rid of all of the ticks and fleas and parasites in general. In fact, that they're going to outlive all of us. I mean, as human beings.
1: Yeah, the only time we manage to make a parasite go extinct is when we make its host go extinct. And I don't think that's our our goal, right? So the, par- <laughs> the parasites will always be with us. But, but we can control them. We can, absolutely. And every tapeworm tells a story. So there's flea tapeworm, there's echinococcus tapeworm, the there's what? What was rabbit, that? rodent tapeworms, there's tapeworms that go through larger animals. So they're all different life cycles, way they ways they get back to the dog or to the cat. But there's one drug to take care of all of them. And so as a veterinarian, as much as, as a parasitologist, I admire the tapeworms and enjoy Who learning doesn't? about them and talking about yes. them. But as a veterinarian, I love to kill them. And so <laughs> we have very safe, very effective drugs that'll do just that. And tapeworms are one of the easier ones. We have one drug that takes care of all the tapeworms. Okay, so so
0: let's talk about fleas a little bit, which is primarily for our dogs and cats, I believe. Sure. Where those tapeworms come from. Yeah. You talked about the complicated, really. You made it sound so easy. But it's a complicated (laughs) life cycle, truly. Uh, Fleas, you know, we we hear all the time, or I hear all the time, uh, from people who go down to Florida. And, you know, a lot of Chicagoans do that. And their neighbor says to them, you know, you're just going to have fleas.
1: Absolutely. If you
0: have a dog, there's nothing you can do.
1: Yeah. 14 that, months of fleas in Florida. Yes. Is that actually
0: 14 months? Is, <laughs> yeah. that, is that actually true? I mean, is I thought that if you use a preventative recommended by your veterinarian, no, that isn't true. You can prevent fleas. Completely. Yeah. In your house.
1: Yeah. And that's true in Florida. That's true anywhere. So as long as the pet owner takes the recommendation from the veterinarian to heart and is diligent about using the flea control per label, there is no reason for any dog or cat anywhere to have fleas any longer. And so that's a great success story because if there's no fleas, there's no flea tapeworm and there's no bacteria that the fleas can transmit, which can also cause disease in people. So it's a public health service to get rid of those fleas and it's completely doable.
0: And it turns out that, you know, it's a You'd be really good on what are those? Uh, what's the name of the game show where they ask all the questions and they say what is? And and I ask you the most common allergy in dogs or cats. People would say food allergies, or maybe 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 some people would say environmental. But it doesn't. What turn is out.
1: flea allergy dermatitis you for win. a thousand? Yes. yes. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Explain what that is and why this is a huge issue. Right.
1: So that's just an allergic reaction from the dog or cat that's been sensitized to the flea saliva. But then every time a flea bites that pet for the rest of that pet's life, it's going to have that allergic reaction. And, and that they'll, could be one bite. Yeah, one bite, just a handful of fleas. The, the dogs and cats will chew at themselves. They'll scratch. They'll do so much damage to their skin. And what's frustrating for a veterinarian and, and for a pet owner is they come into the veterinary practice with their pet. You know, they've lost their hair There's hair loss, there's scabs, there's um, clear damage to the skin, and there's not a flea in sight because flea allergic pets are actually better groomers. So cats that have flea allergy dermatitis spend more time grooming themselves than cats that don't because they're itchy all the time, right? Uh And so they remove all the fleas, but there's more fleas in the environment that then get on the cat and keep that cycle of allergy going. And if we can just treat them with highly effective flea control products that every veterinarian has access to, we can make all the allergic paritis go away, all the itching go away, Mm -hmm. and all the fleas go away, which of course is what we want. Mm -hmm. So
0: now, and we'll ask you about this after we come back from a commercial break, you know, you can go to a big box store and buy all sorts of products. You can go buy a product that maybe you're appealing to you because it's all natural, and you like that idea because we're putting so many bad things on our pets or giving them bad things to swallow. But it turns out maybe that isn't the right way to go about it. We'll talk about that, and I want to talk about ticks. There's this, I read, you'll tell me if it's true, that ticks can fly. Now hold on, we'll take a commercial break. It was a story I read in National Geographic. So Mm -hmm. you'll explain it all. Ticks flying. I thought when I read pigs can fly, that was way too much. (laughs) But ticks, we'll talk about that when we come back with Dr. Susan Little on WGN. Dr. Susan Little is a professor of veterinary parasitology. We're at a veterinary conference, the uh, convention of the American Veterinary Medical Association in Denver. Not a lot of parasites here, but you speak all over the world about this, or you did before the pandemic, anyway.
1: Yeah, and we've actually started that back up again. And so I do love traveling and talking with folks about parasites. Veterinarians are so good at controlling fleas and ticks, do you think, internal parasites.
0: I'm going to get you in trouble here. But do you think that when it comes to tick disease, which people can get, uh, uh, not only their dogs, uh, or even parasite control in general and diseases that parasites, long list, can cause in humans, that veterinarians might know more than human physicians
1: um definitely yeah i would say definitely no different and so we have a lot of uh, exposure in veterinary training and in our continuing education programs to zoonotic infections. And many. Which
0: means infections that can go from animal to people.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And so many veterinarians really take it to heart that we're not, we, we, our first focus, our primary focus is protecting the health of the dog and cat patient, but also in our realm of responsibility is protecting the health of the family. And so rabies vaccination, obviously we never want a dog or a cat to get rabies, but we certainly don't want a person exposed to that either. And so, so much of what we do is public health. And that's true for parasite control. Fleas and ticks on pets cause problems on pets, but they also cause problems for that home that they live in. No one wants to live in a flea infested home and, or a tick infested home.
0: Right. And even if the tick isn't going to go, I mean, you can, good news, you cannot get tick disease directly from your dog. Right. But if there's ticks in the environment, that's how your dog got tick disease, which means there's ticks in the environment, which means... You're as susceptible, if not more so, uh, than your dog. You know? right. So I read that story. The ticks, according to recent research, fly. I so, never knew that. So that, there's a name for what they do hovering is what a lot of yeah, folks call it. Yes, yeah. yeah.
1: So it's a, they're, um, They're light. Ticks are not heavy before they're fed. Once they're fed, they get pretty chunky, but they're light in the unfed state. They're out there on vegetation waiting for a host to walk by, but they're all, they also carry a static electric charge, just like all of us do. And so you, as the host walks by, if it doesn't happen to brush against the vegetation, the thinking is that the static will pull the tick over through the air. So they don't fly so much as they hover, maybe take advantage of some drafts, some winds in the environment, but certainly are are attracted to a host with that static charge. And we've seen that in the lab too. If you try and take unfed ticks and put them in a plastic tube, they'll pop from one side to the other because the static electricity in mm. that small environment will, will pull them.
0: Do they have any ability to think about what they do? Or are they just innately do it?
1: Yeah, so that's one of the big questions about evolution is, are any of us really thinking about what we do, right? Or are we just doing it? But um, with ticks, they'll, they're up on the vegetation. You know, the idea was always waiting for their host to walk by. Yeah, But if you're a staticky tick, if you have a lot of, you know, if you're like the balloon that's been rubbed against the hair, that'll now stick to the wall, right? If you're Uh a staticky tick, then you're more likely to make it to fur. You're more likely to survive, to reproduce to the next generation. And so over evolutionary time, a shocky tick, a staticky tick, would be selected for.
0: Wow. Okay. I never thought about that. Ticks, they say... And you'll tell me what you say. There are more of them today in more places in America than ever before. And I do mean ever before since the Native Americans were here, before the Native Americans. I mean, ever, 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 ever. Is that true?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. The habitat change that's happened in North America is dramatic. We had deforestation, which which reduced ticks with agricultural expansion in early colonization. But now we've had massive reforestation. But it's not gone back to the historic forest type, right? It's different. And we have overpopulation or high populations of white-tailed deer, which are great hosts for a lot of the ticks. Um, We're living in wooded areas, which is where – so we're living amongst the ticks, right, rather than in more um, cleared areas. And so that's going to contribute to higher exposure to the ticks. And then we've had uh, warmer – wetter years for many years now. And so as those trends continue, um, we're seeing more ticks, more places. And that means more ticks, but also more tick-borne infections.
0: Are there tick-borne diseases that our dogs are getting that we might not even know about?
1: There are. In fact, we talk about all the tick-borne infections that we worry about in dogs because all of them can be controlled by tick control. So the one thing they have in common is the ticks. So even though, you know, I can list off Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, lichiosis, babesiosis, hepatosomenosis, and keep, mm-hmm. keep going for all mm-hmm. the tick-borne infections. There's more out there that haven't yet been discovered or identified. We get a new tick-borne infection in North America about every six months. A new one shows up in the literature that we know, okay, now we have to worry about this one too.
0: Are some of them coming over from other... I I read somewhere that that you're shaking your head yes.
1: Yeah, so both. The introduction from other areas, and that's true with the longhorn tick that was
0: introduced... That's um, the one I'm thinking um,
1: Most recently, yeah, 2017 is the first time we saw that. It's now...
0: Introduced from Asia?
1: It is an Asian longhorn tick, but it was introduced to Australia 100 years ago, so we're not sure if it came in from Asia or came in from Australia, New Zealand. And how does something
0: like that come in?
1: So uninfested... Person or dog or other animal could bring the tick in and not even know, right? So the a person could come in with it a tick. It could have been not, even
0: a zoo animal transport. Yeah,
1: or a, a, a agricultural animals, livestock are generally inspected, and there have been many interceptions, um, a dozen interceptions of longhorn ticks coming into the U.S. at ports where USDA is inspecting the animals. But the dogs aren't inspected, and the people aren't inspected, and well, so there's still opportunity for introduction. One
0: more factor that isn't inspected, to my knowledge, are birds.
1: Right, so birds. So birds fly
0: where they fly, yeah. And I don't think they have to show a passport before entering America.
1: And we worry about bird introduction of ticks from uh, Latin America, from South America and Central America, because of the way the flyways go. And Mm -hmm. so that certainly happens. There's been thoughts of there's an Amblyomma tick on the Caribbean islands. That's the concern is introduction into uh, the continental U.S. through that through that bird.
0: And now those ticks would do better because of the weather changes in america
1: yeah they've certainly done very well the The genetic data suggests that the longhorn tick was introduced as many as three different times, um, and it's now present in 18 states and counting. And so it's really spread throughout the eastern U.S. They do. They've not been shown to be a major vector of disease in the U.S. yet, but in Asia, the longhorn tick is an important vector of severe fever, thrombocytopenia syndrome in humans, which is a viral infection that's of concern.
0: It doesn't sound good.
1: It's not. And they do carry a cattle disease in the U.S., and so that's a concern too, Tileria. So far...
0: Oh, it's so scary to talk it to is
1: well and so far no dog or cat diseases directly found in the field but there's mm-hmm. been some laboratory confirmation that it's possible so there's a lot of interest luckily the tick control products we have are effective against the longhorn tick the same mm-hmm. as they're effective against the lone star tick the american dog tick the brown dog tick the deer tick
0: so That's good all
1: comprehensive yeah comprehensive control because then that prevents all the infections too
0: uh, the big one, of course, is Lyme disease. That's the one we know about right. because I think that is the tick disease that impacts most people. Yeah. And I believe the same is true for dogs. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the signs of Lyme disease is the dogs just not feeling great. Another is the way they limp. Alternative legs, right? So it could be the front right leg, then it's the back left leg. I think that's correct. Uh, Do you think that Lyme in dogs is underdiagnosed because we sometimes say, even veterinarians, well, it's an old dog, and don't necessarily look for that, although I'd argue veterinarians are better trained to look for it, as I said, than human physicians, for which I will hear from people, I'm sure, for saying that. (laughs) But in addition, dogs just can't tell us, and we don't take their temperatures, so they can't tell us, oh, I'm running a low-grade fever today. They can't tell us, eh, I don't feel like going to work because I feel cruddy.
1: Right. Yeah. And dogs can be really stoic too. So they'll, um, have the polyarthritis, the pain, every time they move, pain, so they just become more quiet. And as you said, you just think, well, the dog's gotten older, he's not as active. But when that dog is taken into a veterinary practice and the, the test for Lyme disease, and every dog should be screened annually for tick-borne infections, for heartworm infection, a, a variety of vector-borne infections. When you find a positive for Lyme disease and do some more digging with the owner and talk about that change in behavior that maybe they've noticed, put that dog on antibiotics for Borrelia burgdorferi, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, um, in a couple days, sometimes you see a dramatic change in that dog's um, energy level, vigor, just happiness with the world. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, they had a subclinical infection that maybe they were just stoically muscling through when actually they they would have benefited from that veterinary care.
0: So therefore, do you think Lyme disease, even in dogs and veterinarians are really good at looking for but even the best veterinarian on the planet cannot find something in a dog that veterinarian isn't seeing. So do you think that uh, Lyme disease is underdiagnosed in dogs?
1: It is. I do think it is underdiagnosed in dogs and we know it's underdiagnosed in people. So there's about a half million cases, new cases of Lyme disease just in the United States every year in people, but only about 50,000, 40 to 50,000 are actually diagnosed, laboratory confirmed, reported to CDC. Maybe the patient develops that rash, that classic rash, so the Mm -hmm. physician can turn them in. But CDC knows that it's a gross underdiagnosis. And so they then have a adjustment factor they where they calculate up. A couple yeah. Of years ago, yeah. Right. And when they first did it, it was about 30,000 cases reported and they knew it was about 330,000 cases actually. Now we're at forty to 50,000 cases reported. And so we know it's about 450,000 cases mm-hmm, yeah. in humans. And so I think the same thing is going on in dogs, although many dogs do develop subclinical infection, Um, either because they're vaccinated, which in any endemic area, we would hope dogs would be vaccinated to protect them from Lyme disease. Um, They're on tick control. So maybe they get a very low level of infection, just a low inoculum and they're able, their immune system's able to overcome it. But other times the dogs are just, you know, going through their life, not not telling us anything. And so we have to figure out that they would benefit from the treatment.
0: I want to talk more about tick disease uh, because it's more than just Lyme. We will do that. And where to get those products, as I said earlier, we'll do that When we come back on WGN. Next week on the show, we talk to a colleague of mine. Her name is Amy Shojai. She has written, I don't know, 4,000 books about pets, something like that. Every week, it seems that she has a new book coming out about pets. She's been writing about pets for a very long time. Former president of Get This. In fact, the founder of the Cat Writers Association of America. It's an organization that I happen to be a member of. It's kind of scary in some ways, but it's a very good thing. In addition to that, we'll be talking about arthritis in dogs and cats, and specifically looking at a new product that'll be out any minute, I hope. It's been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. It's a monoclonal antibody that will help dogs that are arthritic. So we're talking about a lot of dogs out there. We're talking about older dogs. We're talking about overweight dogs. We're talking about... Very, very likely if you happen to have certain breeds just because they are of that breed. Dr. Tammy Grubb will be here to talk about all of that next week. Dr. Susan Little is a veterinary parasitologist, Oklahoma State University, College of Veterinary Medicine. I've not been to Oklahoma, and I'm rectifying that before the end of the year, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, One of those parasites that you look at, and you're one of the leaders on the planet, uh, are ticks. And we talked a bit about Lyme disease. And yes, it's no one wants their dog to get Lyme, you know, but it's not a death sentence when you talk about arthritic issues, when you talk about a dog just not feeling well. To me, that's important because we're talking quality of life for the dog. But it can lead to something called Lyme nephritis. Did I say that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just kidney disease associated with those bacteria. So that can
0: be really bad.
1: It can be fatal. Yeah. It's, it's often fatal and it's, it's a tragic, um, end for that dog. It's preventable. So if we can get the dogs vaccinated and on tick control and routinely on tick control, then we can protect them from Lyme nephritis because when it happens and the dogs develop that severe renal disease, kidney disease associated with the bacterial infection, it's very difficult to bring them back. Even with the best veterinary care at the best referral institutions in the country, yeah. um, we can't save them all.
0: Um, and it's not only Lyme. I mean, you rattled off a list, a list earlier Babesiosis or lichitis and on and on and on and there are sub lichia disease and things I don't even I don't even understand however the point is there are lots and lots of tick diseases they're all avoidable if you use a product that is recommended for your geography that's important I guess right by your veterinarian.
1: That's right. Yeah. And there's there's different ticks and different tick-borne diseases in different regions of the United States. And that's why it's so important to work with your veterinarian on what she thinks is the best recommendation for your dog in terms of tick control and also protecting against tick-borne infections. In some areas of the country, you mentioned you're visiting Oklahoma soon, not to brag, but we have the best ticks in the country or the worst because just the sheer numbers. Um We have tick swarms in the spring where you'll you have just what tick swarms. Sometimes they're referred to as tick blooms, where you just look down at the ground and there's thousands of ticks all coming out of the leaf litter, all looking for You're hosts. Kidding! It's it's a sight to behold. Um,
0: well, but, you would get excited well, <laughs> about that. I'd run to the other state, next right?
1: Door. So when you have that, you know, when the dog just walking across his own wooded yard is going to be exposed to thousands of ticks. That's a that's a tall order for any tick control product to protect against. And, and so they? sometimes we layer them. Well, uh. we might use a systemic tick control product that will make sure if, if a tick does bite, it'll be killed by that by that product and then also have a long-acting tick collar that has something that'll repel and kill ticks or a topical product that will repel and kill the ticks so that most of them don't even stay on the fur. Um, And so combining those can be necessary certain times of the year. And And then the rest of the year, just making sure there's something that's going to be effective against the ticks of concern.
0: And in other places, a vaccine if we're talking Lyme disease.
1: Right. And vaccination for Lyme disease is absolutely critical in areas of the country where Lyme disease is endemic or emerging, which really is most of the country anymore, because there's been such geographic expansion of that deer tick that transmits the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. So
0: for a dog that's out and about in Chicago, and you're not giving specific recommendations, it would be unfair for you to do that. But broadly speaking, for the geography of Chicago, we know there's Lyme in Chicago. And I've talked to veterinarians who have treated little white fluffy dogs for Lyme that never go anywhere except their own backyard, Mm -hmm. you know? How did they get there? Well, I don't know, but it's there. Would you recommend the vaccine as well?
1: Yeah, completely, 100%. Vaccination for Lyme disease and tick control. And you really have to pair the two because the vaccination is incredibly important, protects the dog from, from Lyme disease, clinical disease. Um, But there's so many other infections that come through ticks that you still have to have tick control in place. Mm -hmm. It bolsters the activity of the vaccine because there's going to be fewer bacteria, Borrelia bacteria getting through to cause Lyme disease. But it also protects against all those other infections that can come in from the ticks.
0: So way earlier on, I said, and people do, and I understand it. You might get something less expensive at a pet store or just going online. People make choices based on all sorts of things. What's on sale or perhaps, oh... Uh, that's a Maltese. I like Maltese and the packaging, and therefore right. they buy that product. Uh, talk about the way to make a decision to buy a protection product for fleas and or ticks.
1: Right. Well, because there are differences in different regions of the country, that's why it's good to work with your local veterinarian on the best recommendation because she'll know what's happening, what she's seen in her practice, what's going on locally, and how to best protect the dog. Um, the big box stores are operating nationally, internationally, and they're just trying to move as much product as possible. That's sure. their goal is to yeah. sell it. And so they're not customizing it for your pet, no matter what the gorgeous dog on the box looks like, because <laughs> Maltese are wonderful. Could be a beagle. But yeah, it certainly has a subliminal uh, effect, but it's a marketing thing. Yeah. It's not about the healthcare of the pet. And the healthcare of the pet is something that we really entrust to our veterinarians and should. And so they're the best position to make the
0: recommendation. All right. Well, you are the best. Uh, One more thing that comes to mind, the Companion Animal Parasite Council. I think it's petsandparasites.org. So they actually have, as I understand it, I do know, because I served on one of their boards at one time, they're primarily for veterinarians, the, the Companion Animal Parasite Council, to develop policies and standards for other veterinarians to use. But there's a public sort of branch of what they do, Petsandparasites.org, where people can get more information.
1: Right. Yeah. Both are wonderful. CapsiVet.org is a website intended for veterinarians and veterinary technicians, and PetsandParasites.org for pet owners who can really learn more about the diseases. And one of my favorite um, aspects of the Capsi website, and it's a wonderful source of information is the, the maps that are available. So you can actually click on your state and then click on your County and see how many dogs have been diagnosed with Lyme disease, ehrlichiosis, um, uh, anaplasmosis, heartworm, or any of the intestinal parasites. And you can get that information and then better understand why your veterinarian is recommending what he's recommending for your
0: pets. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, Great to talk to you, Dr. Susan Little, one of the world's experts on parasites and parasite control. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. This was fun. Kara Burns, licensed veterinary technician. She saw me this morning and said, open wide. I'm not (laughs) quite sure what you meant by that. But so often, our dogs and cats are walking around with severe periodontal disease. They might even be in pain. And, And we have no idea. And people say, and you'll talk about it, it, Yeah, there are signs of pain, and there are, Yes, but sometimes they just care. They don't tell
2: us. They don't. Um, animals, especially cats, do not like to show pain. Um, and so, yes, it is – periodontal disease is an extremely painful disease. And so we're hoping – um, to, and this has been ongoing, uh, to, we as a veterinary profession are hoping to, um, educate pet owners on, you know, what they should be looking for when it comes to periodontal disease in their pet. Pain is, is huge. Um, and you know, as a healthcare team, we should be doing a pain evaluation on every pet that comes in every time they come in. But owners oftentimes don't, understand, or, or maybe they, they just don't, they know, they might know that periodontal disease or dental disease um, to them is, you know, a potential, but they don't really know what to look for. And, and if their pet is exhibiting signs, they don't really pick up on those as, uh, you know, an issue with their pet's oral cavity. Well, you know, uh, I've,
0: I've had this kind of, so here's an example. A dog overnight at like three in the morning begins to grumble and complain. Uh, <laughs> dog trainer actually said, Well, that dog is having bad dreams. Maybe. But it mm-hmm. turned out not to be the case, yep. or maybe. Yep. But the reason for the, the, the grumbling was was dental pain. Yep. And that would have been number seven hundred or something on the list. It might not have been on a list right. for most pet owners. Right. It, it's, it's hard to connect those dots. Correct. Dental pain and three in the morning, the dog going
2: are being yeah. uncomfortable how can you put those together but it turns out that's one example that is one example um pets drooling you know oftentimes you know pet owners don't pick up on that they think oh you know um maybe he got something in his mouth or you know maybe he's not feeling well which you know a- again this is why they need to bring them into the veterinary hospital because because um, salivation can be from, you know, um, the oral cavity being um, or having dental disease or it can be um, a sign of GI disease. Uh, but what I'm hoping is that we can start educating our owners on a number of these things. Like you said, the grumbling in the middle of the night, the drooling, the dropping of food um, with the, with the pet wanting to eat. But it hurts. It hurts. It hurts to
0: to pick up that kibble. And and sometimes they don't. So you've got the cat that's just being finicky. Mm -hmm, Right. The dog, really, that uh, now uh, Labrador, that (laughs) Labradors do this anyway, but is literally not chewing any of the food. Right. It's just inhaling the food because it hurts to chew it. Absolutely. Yep. So So those are examples you can see. But I would argue sometimes there is nothing. There is no sign. Our pets are just not telling us. And now there's a new way when you go to the
2: veterinarian that your veterinarian can tell you very quickly. Absolutely. Um, strip DX is a 10 second um, diagnostic tool that the veterinary healthcare team can use in an awake animal. Um, so you bring your, your pet in for uh, for an examination and when they're looking at the oral cavity, it's a, it's a test strip that that is run, um, along the gum line and what they're looking for is, um, uh, or if the, the test strip turns a, um, a, a color of yellow, um, then that is evidence of periodontal disease
0: and then the veterinarian can make recommendations absolutely now this
2: to me of course there's
0: cost to it but it saves money for clients absolutely because maybe then x-rays are not needed because even the best veterinarian so you can as you guys say flip the lip yeah and (laughs) and you can look at the oral cavity as you guys also say and look at the gums and the gum line and say, oh my gosh, it's a mess. Sometimes it's clear. You can see the target plaque, and you can tell. And you
2: can smell it coming in the door, right? I (laughs) mean,
0: it's it's, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But sometimes maybe not. Absolutely. Because even you have good eyes, but you don't have x-ray eyes. Right. So short of taking x-rays, which there's a higher cost to, this is a precursor to that, or... If it does, if it doesn't turn yellow, then you don't need those X rays at least this time around.
2: Yeah, um, what I do is I, I run the strip test. Um, uh, the The owner's right there, so they can see what we're doing. They mm-hmm. can see um, it turn color or not. Um, oh, I was just rubbing something against the gum. Yeah, it takes <laughs> right. a few seconds. It right. only takes ten seconds yeah. um, to get to get an answer, and then we discuss that with the veterinarian. And if there is signs of periodontal disease, we, as a veterinary healthcare team, explain what that, that means sure. um, to the pet owner. And then, you know, we, we want to then bring the pet in for a comprehensive oral health assessment and treatment plan. And that does include, um, uh, management. So periodontal therapy, um, radiographs, et cetera.
0: Radiographs meaning x-rays. However, right.
2: if it doesn't turn yellow,
0: mm-hmm. that means, oh, Everything's okay, at least for now. For now. Yes. yes, Everything's good. uh, So ultimately saving rather than routinely doing x-rays and routinely doing things that are, I wouldn't say are more invasive, but more time consuming and maybe more difficult for the pet to some extent.
2: Yeah. With radiographs, the the pet will need to be sedated. And this is is a diagnostic tool that, you know, I'm excited about because it's 10 seconds in the exam room. Um, no sedation is needed and so it starts it not only starts that conversation but it shows the pet owner what we oh, are the are talking you, you about say, yes okay
0: look it turned yellow right it's not a coincidence right
2: and what that means is it detected uh periodontal disease or files looking
0: at is it looking at uh, it's,
2: it's looking at files which, which um is, is bacteria um especially down in the pockets of um, and under the gum line. Um, and so the more thiols, um, the more evidence of periodontal disease. So that's why I'm so excited about this, this product. Um, you know, it's to well, me it's a game changer yeah. for, for dental health. And getting this done earlier or
0: catching periodontal disease earlier means potentially – uh, maybe not having to remove as many teeth. Absolutely. The disease continued to progress yes. on its own.
2: Yes. And oftentimes, you know, we want to get away, the, the professional wants to get away from seeing, you know, these really nasty mouths where yeah. the where the teeth are barely in, because- Right. By the time
0: the client comes in, things yeah. are pretty bad. Yeah. Because the pet never said earlier on, I'm Exactly.
2: Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a it's a great, you know, tool um, to, to begin that education. You know, we're going to do this diagnostic test because, and it's, you know, because of um, the prevalence of periodontal disease, um, because of we want owners to, um, to be more cognizant of the potential for periodontal disease so um you know it's another tool in our toolbox but for me it's a it's a game changer um because we have a 10 second periodontal diagnostic um tool that we can use in both um awake cats and dogs excellent it's always excellent
0: talking to you.
2: Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you, Kara. Yep, thank you.
0: Oh, at this point, you probably saw the video of the Malaysian or Indonesian sun bear at the Chinese zoo that might have been a person, or at least watching the video. What do you think? Was that a person actually in a bear suit? Or is that really a bear standing on two legs asking to be fed? Well, I think it was a bear. I'm not sure. Only in China. Would a zoo be suspected of having a person disguised as an animal? In part, it has happened there. In fact, in 2013, a zoo in China was caught attempting to pass off a dog as a lion. Uh, really? Yeah, really. It's it's crazy. But I will tell you, this smallest of bear species really does have its... It looks like... Because if you look at the video, it looks like... the the bear is actually a person in a costume because all that hair or fur or fat is kind of bunched up at the bottom on their back. Well, that is natural for a sun bear because they climb, and that way their skin is looser. It can stretch as they go up and down and up and down. They are the most arboreal of all the bear species. Uh, But here's what really gets me mad. You'll notice in most of the videos, you'll see people throwing something, maybe marshmallows, toward the bear. They've actually trained the bear, and it is a bear, to do what the bear is doing, which is standing. It's like what happens at the dinner table if you feed your dog. Your dog comes back for more. And maybe your dog went, you know, to ask for food, and you fed your dog. So your dog's going to do it again. And that's what's going on with this bear. Un- unwittingly, people have trained this bear to beg for food. What is the zoo doing? They should not be allowing people to feed the bear food. Not only do we not see natural behavior, we see trained behavior, and it sure isn't healthy for the bear either. We'll talk to you next week bright and early on WGN.